Good evening and welcome. Uh, Josh, I think we need some lights up here. Awesome. Thank you. Welcome all of you to uh, our evening service. Uh, several announcements in the bulletin about a, a number of upcoming events. Um, I mentioned this morning that there's been a lot going on here, and uh, someone close to me, someone very close to me, said, um, hey, you didn't give a shout out to the ladies' fellowship event yesterday. So I was planning on doing a whole segment on that tonight. Um, I was here for just the first few minutes of that event. Uh, a lot of ladies here. I heard from a number of you that it was a wonderful, wonderful time. So uh, that was a blessing, I think, for those of you who were here. And uh, again, there's a lot going on uh, coming up soon, too. So uh, please read the bulletin. Make sure that you're aware of all of that. Uh, tonight, of course, is pie night. Um, Ruth told me that we should put a, a video on the screen of all the selection of pies and cakes that are back there to tempt you to get some after the service. But uh, we probably won't do that um, but we would encourage you to stay and uh, enjoy pie. Have a couple pieces of pie if you want. Sundays, calories don't count on Sundays, so uh, feel free to stay and enjoy pie with us. I'm going to ask all of you to stand as we have a, a moment of silent prayer and ask for the Lord's blessing upon this service. Let's bow before him. Father, we are so thankful tonight for the privilege and the freedom and the health that we have to gather for worship this evening. We pray that everything we do in this service would bring honor and glory to you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 90 is the only psalm that Moses wrote, and it is our call to worship tonight. Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Receive now the greeting of our God and King, grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are going to confess together the words of the Apostles' Creed, page 100. And 48 in the Forms and Prayers book, if those words are, are not familiar to you. Uh, but a beautiful statement about God, who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so let us say these words together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We're going to sing the hymn, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. It's a wonderful thing to know that, that our lives are in God's hands. We just confess that uh, God is the maker, the almighty maker of all things. And to know that our lives are in his hands is wonderful, wonderful and comforting truth. And that's what we sing in this song. Four stanzas, Christ is sure and steady anchor, and let's remain standing as we sing. 
For the last few months, we have been reading through the Canons of Dort together, and I would invite you to turn in the Forms and Prayers book to page 262. Page 262 in the Forms and Prayers book. We look tonight at uh, just one article, and that is Article 14, which uh, has to do with uh, how do you teach this doctrine of election. Article 14, page 262. Notice what it says. Just as by God's wise plan, this teaching concerning divine election has been proclaimed through the prophets, Christ himself, and the apostles in Old and New Testament times, and has subsequently been committed to writing in the Holy Scriptures, so also today in God's church, for which it was specifically intended, this teaching must be set forth with a spirit of discretion, in a godly and holy manner, at the appropriate time and place, without inquisitive searching into the ways of the most holy. This must be done for the glory of God's most holy name and for the lively comfort of his people. Uh, years ago, I, I remember having conversation with someone who, who said to me, you know, you, you Calvinists, you, you reform people, you spend so much time talking about this um, obscure doctrine of election. What's, what's the point? It's, it's not that important. It's not that significant. Uh, and and that, that phrase, obscure doctrine, always kind of stuck in my head. The Cans of Dort makes very clear that election is not an obscure doctrine. Now, we have to be careful about how we deal with it, but it's not obscure. It's taught in the prophets, it's taught in the apostles, it's taught in the Old and New Testaments. Jesus himself taught it. You have to do some, some pretty serious mental gymnastics to act that the Bible doesn't say much about election. But, but the question is this, since the doctrine of election is so hotly debated, since it is seen by some people to be so controversial and so off-putting, wouldn't it be better if we just didn't say anything about it? Wouldn't it be better if we just kept quiet about election? Well, the canons make, I think, the very helpful point that, that we should preach on it. We should teach the doctrine of election, and, and we should do so with the following things in mind. First of all, we, we should preach on it because it's in the Bible, and, and since it's in the Bible and since we're called to, to teach the whole counsel of God, we should and, and must, if we are faithful, we, we must teach the doctrine of election. Secondly, though, we must not go beyond what the Bible says about election. You, you may have noticed that it talked about um, searching inquisitively. In other words, we, we shouldn't go where the Bible doesn't go. We, we can't say about someone who's currently living well, that person obviously is not one of the elect. We don't know that. We don't know, but maybe that person will be like the thief on the cross, and at the moment of their death, they will come to know Christ as their Savior. And so we cannot say of someone who is living, they're not elect, because we don't know. Third, we, we, when we understand election properly, it gives us tremendous comfort. This doctrine is meant for our comfort. You, you should be comforted and I should be comforted knowing that before the foundation of the world, apart from anything in me or in you, God set his love on you. 
And, and he set on his love on you before the beginning of time, and, and he will never take his love off of you. That should be comforting. And, and fourth, in, in all of our preaching and teaching about election, we don't do it to win an argument. I, I've been in the, the cage phase before where I wanted to argue with everyone about election. That's, that's not godly at all. We, we don't preach it to win an argument. We don't preach it to make ourselves look smart or that we know more than you do. We, we teach this doctrine because it brings glory to God and it brings comfort to the believer. It is a wonderful thing to know that God set his love on us before the foundation of the world. It is a wonderful thing to know that God determined before creation to save us in Christ. And, and, and God's purposes will never fail. They'll never be defeated And so, Christian, you should find immense comfort in this doctrine. And as we teach it, we we do so in a spirit of love and humility, uh, but we do so because this is what the Word of God teaches. Uh, We're going to sing now number 427. Number 427, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. Uh, There's a, well, it's a beautiful hymn. Most of us love this hymn, but... There's a beautiful line in here in the, in the third stanza. For thou wert long beforehand with my soul. Always, always thou lovest me. That's a, a great, great truth. So we'll sing the three stanzas and let's stand as we sing.
please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are tonight for the doctrine of election. Uh, we thank you for uh, the comfort that it brings to us. And we begin our prayer by confessing that you are worthy, Lord, to receive blessing and honor and glory and power. Uh, for you are the one who has created all things, and for your pleasure and praise they are and were created. Lord, you made heaven and earth, a sea, and everything in them. You you spoke and everything came to be, and you continue to sustain and uphold all things today by the word of your power. Father, again, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the good news that Christ came for sinners. He didn't come for righteous people, for there are none. He, he came for sinners. He came to save those who could not save themselves. And Lord, as we saw this morning in the parting of the Red Sea, it is a wonderful picture of who we were by nature, a wonderful picture of how you came down to rescue us. And Lord, we pray that our response day after day to your grace and mercy to us would be praise, worship, adoration, obedience, that we would seek to follow you and honor you in all that we say and do. We thank you again for this church. We thank you for those who serve here. We thank you for our elders and deacons. We thank you for the, the communion of saints that we enjoy from week to week. We pray, Lord, that all of the various ministries here would, would be for our benefit. We pray even for uh, things like Pi Night and the Ladies Fellowship event and, and these other things that take place, Blast. We, we pray, Lord, that all of these would would draw us closer to each other and, and give us more opportunity to serve and to care for each other. We lift up before you those who are hurting. We pray for Bill DeCock and Tony Visser. We pray, Lord, that your healing hand would be upon them. We pray that you would continue to grant healing to Marge Richardson and Mark Borges following their surgeries. We thank you that uh, both are doing well. We pray for Marge Mulder as she has eye surgery tomorrow, Lord. We pray that that surgery will be successful, that there will be no complications, and that you will grant a speedy recovery to Marge. Lord, we, we pray for your church all throughout the world. We pray that you would bless her with faithful ministers and elders and deacons. We pray that you would preserve your people from false teaching and division. We pray for the persecuted church in particular that that you would give a special measure of your grace and your comfort and your peace to those who suffer immensely on account of their faith in Christ. We pray for our missionaries, Lord, that, that you would bless their labors. Uh, Lord, keep them from discouragement. Keep them from wanting to give up. Help them, Lord, to, to recognize that, that you have called them to this work, that you will equip them, and that you will bless their ministries as you see fit. We pray for the missions agencies also that we support that are doing so much good work throughout the world. We, we ask, Lord, that you would bless their labors. We pray for those who serve in difficult professions. Uh, we pray that you would watch over them and keep them. We, we lift up uh, college students and others who are away from us, maybe due to work. We pray that you would bless them and watch over them as well. Uh, Lord, we pray for our civil leaders. We are troubled in, in many senses at what we see going on in our world today. 
we, we seem to think, Lord, that uh, evil appears to be prevailing, but, but we know that you are on your throne. We know that, that nothing catches you by surprise, that you are in control of all things. And we pray that you would bend the hearts of our political leaders to do your will. We pray that you would raise up men and women, godly men and women, who will serve our nation well. Father, we thank you for all that you've blessed us with as we look forward to this Thanksgiving day. Lord, each one of us has so much to be thankful for. Help us to to be a truly thankful people for all of your blessings to us. We pray that we would give tonight with cheerful hearts, and we pray that as we open your word, you would instruct us and guide us uh, that we would be faithful followers of Jesus in your strength. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. We now give to Abide Young Adult Reform Fellowship, and that offering will now be taken. Thank you, Marge. Uh, please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to uh, the New Testament to the book of First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1, we will be reading the first eight verses. Last week, we uh, began by looking at the fact that First uh, Timothy is essentially a letter from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor by the name of Timothy uh, to lay out to Timothy God's blueprint for the church. And if you were here, you remember we covered the the opening part of the chapter where Paul gives this kind of opening charge to Timothy. 
And he says to Timothy two things. First of all, he says, Timothy, you need to deal with false teachers. You can't let false teachers run unchecked and rampant in your church. Uh, We all know that the word of God has been perverted and twisted ever since the Garden of Eden. Ever since um, Satan said to Eve, has God really said? And all throughout the Bible, God warns us over and over about the dangers of false teachers. Jeremiah 23, verse 16, the Lord says, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They do not speak my word, they speak from their own minds. Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe everyone who says, I speak for God. But test the spirits, John says, to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Doesn't take much to find a false prophet today. You can walk into, if Christian bookstores still exist, you can walk into one of those and find all kinds of garbage. Uh, You can tune your TV into uh, health, wealth, and prosperity preachers who will tell you what you need to do to become healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Uh, The point is that, that one of the things that will mark the life of the church as far back as the Garden of Eden is false teaching. It's the presence of false teachers. I had heard an interview this afternoon with a, a very well-known pastor who said he believes that one of the problems, one of the major problems that the church will face in our day is the problem of the lack of discernment. That because we lack discernment, we can be killed by a multitude of heresies. And I, I think he was right. We, we need to be discerning. We need to watch out for false teachers. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you need to be on guard for this. And and this is God's word to us as well. And then secondly, you remember, Paul said, um, Timothy, the goal of your ministry is love. The goal of your ministry is love. The goal of our ministry is not head knowledge. The goal of our ministry is not to win an argument. The goal of our ministry is not to, to make ourselves look good and to make a name for ourselves. The goal of our ministries is that God's people would love God and they would love others. And so that was Paul's opening charge. And now tonight we come to verses 8 through 11, which kind of dovetails on what Paul said last week. Notice what it says. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We begin tonight with the question, why has God given us his law? Why has God given us his law? Children, how would you answer that question? Why has God given us his law? This is a very basic, very important question. We, we know, after all, that the Bible contains God's law. The Bible contains God's commandments to us. 
Why has God given those commandments to us? Verse 8 says that there is a, a lawful use of God's law. Well, what is a lawful use? We, we know, on the one hand, that there is an unlawful use. We know that there is a wrong use of God's law. One, one wrong way to use God's law is to say that through our obedience to the law, we can be right with God. There's a massive number of people in our society, in our world today, who believe that. Who believe that somehow they can get to heaven on the basis of their own obedience. That, of course, is completely contrary to Scripture, which says that no one will be justified in God's sight on the basis of the works of the law. So that's a wrong way to use the law. Second wrong way to use the law is to just throw it out. To, to say that it, it means nothing anymore. Nowhere does the New Testament teach that, that once we become Christians, we, we take God's law and we just chuck it. We just get rid of it. We, we can't say, well, that, that doesn't apply to us anymore. We're not under law in that sense. As New Covenant believers, you and I are still called to follow God in obedience. And, and so what is the, the right use of God's law? Our passage tonight is, is very helpful in instructing us this way. And, and this should be important to all of us. Uh, because as Christians, these are God's commands to every one of us. And so you should care and I should care what is the right way to use God's law. Here in chapter 1, uh, Paul has been warning Timothy about the danger of false teachers uh, that has infiltrated this church in Ephesus. These were men who fancied themselves to be great teachers of the law, but, but Paul says they didn't even really know what they were talking about. Instead of teaching God's law correctly, what these false teachers were doing was they were using God's law to go off into myths and endless genealogies, as, as verse 4 says. In other words, they were, they were starting with the law and then they were adding in all this um, man-made stuff. This, by the way, is, is typical of a false teacher. They, they will use the law as a springboard to then add in their own commands. And, and so the, the command of Scripture not to be drunk with wine now becomes you must never drink any alcohol. The, the command of Scripture not to commit adultery becomes women should never wear pants, as if wearing pants leads to sexual sin. Or it becomes you must never watch a movie or never watch TV. And, and so here in the church in Ephesus, there were these false teachers putting themselves forward as great teachers of the law, but they were adding to the law. In reality, not really understanding why God had given his law. And now Paul wants to remind Timothy of the right use of God's law. And there are three parts to this passage. First of all, there is the nature of the law. Then there is the purpose of the law. And then there is the connection between the law and the gospel. The nature of the law, the purpose of the law, and the connection between the law and the gospel. Paul begins, notice in verse 8, by saying, We know that the law is good. Children, this is, a, this is a really important statement. It's a very short statement. The law is good. There are a lot of people who would disagree with Paul. There are a lot of people who would say that the law is not good. 
That the law is meant to, to rain on our parade. The law is meant to squash our fun. The law is meant to make us miserable. And, and you and I seem to be living in a society with an ever-increasing hatred of law and an ever-increasing refusal to listen to the law. I watched a video the other day, and, and most of you have probably seen stuff like this, but uh, people just walking into Target and, and Best Buy and other stores and, and grabbing handfuls of merchandise, grabbing TVs, grabbing other things and just walking out. And, and I think if it's less than $1,000, you can't do anything about it. You just let them go. We, we are dealing with a society that rejects law and rejects authority. But the Bible tells us that law is important. Civil law is important. It is especially God's law that is important. Paul says here that the problem is not with God's law. The law is actually good. That, that word translated good is, is a Greek word that means useful. The, the law is useful. There are many other passages that teach us the same thing. Psalm 19 verse 7 says the law of the Lord is perfect. God's law has no defects. God's law has no imperfections. God's law, the Bible says, is perfect. Romans 7 verse 12, Paul says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not with God's law. The problem is when false teachers twist God's law. The problem is when false teachers add to God's law. Paul is basically saying to Timothy, Timothy, don't let these false teachers keep you from preaching God's law. Just because they misuse it, just because they misinterpret it, just because they twist it, just because they add to it, don't let that, Timothy, keep you from a right understanding and a right use of God's law. Now at this point, it, it might be helpful for us to ask the question, what exactly do we mean by God's law? Our Reformed forefathers um, very wisely and very clearly made the case that the Bible is comprised of two principal parts, law and gospel. Theodore Beza, who was John Calvin's successor in Geneva, said this very thing in 1558. He said this, we divide God's word into two principal parts. The one is called the law, the other is called the gospel. All of scripture, Beza says, can be gathered under the one or the other of these two headings. All of scripture is comprised of law and gospel. Children, law are the commands of God. Gospel is the promises of God. Now, now when we say law and gospel, we don't mean Old Testament and New Testament. I hope you all know that there is law in the Old Testament and there is law in the New Testament. There is gospel in the Old Testament and there is gospel in the New Testament. In fact, I want you to think, if you were here this morning, think about this morning's service. In the call to confession, I read from Romans chapter 13, where God commands us to love one another. That's law. And the passage I preached on, which is actually in the Old Testament, Exodus 14, is a passage that is gospel. God doing for his people what they couldn't do for themselves. 
And so we heard law in the New Testament and we heard gospel in the Old Testament. Don't, don't fall into the trap of thinking that the law is only found in the Old Testament or it's only found in the Ten Commandments. God's law is found throughout the Bible. So Paul says the law is good. But then he adds a qualification. He, he says the law is good as long as one uses it lawfully. It's useful as long as one uses it lawfully. How do we use God's law lawfully? Well, that's the second thing we want to look at tonight, and that is the purpose of the law. Throughout the history of Reformed churches, it has been said that there are three proper or lawful uses of God's law. God's law serves three purposes. And, and it's very important to, to understand these three uses. The first use of God's law is to restrain evil in society. There's a, there's a civil use to God's law. In, in other words, the purpose of the law is to bring order and stability to our society. This is, this is why we have laws against murdering other people. This is why we have laws about stealing from people. And, and civil leaders are tasked with making good laws and enforcing these good laws. Now, you and I know, unfortunately, it is the case today that in many senses there may be good laws on the books, but those good laws aren't enforced. But, but again, this is the first use of God's law. It is to, to put civil laws into place that will restrain sin and wickedness and vice. The second use of God's law is to serve as a mirror. The older we get, the less we like mirrors, right? Because those mirrors tell us and show us something that we may not want to see. God's law is a mirror because it shows us what we don't want to see. It, it shows us, shows me that I'm a sinner and that I cannot save myself. Go over for just a moment, if you have your Bible, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verse 19. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. God has given us his law so that we might see that we are sinners. So that we might see that we are incapable of saving ourselves or contributing anything to our salvation. God has given us his law so that every mouth may be stopped. You ever had somebody say something to you before and, and you knew they got you and you had nothing to say? Children, maybe you did something that your parents had told you not to do and they caught you. And they said, did you do such and such? And you just stand there with your mouth closed because you got nothing to say. Mom and dad got you, caught you. That's, that's kind of, in a sense, what the law does to us. The, the law speaks to us, and, and our mouths are stopped. We've got no answer. We've got no response. 
God speaks his law to us and we know that we're guilty. We know we have nothing to say. Our mouths are shut. Martin Luther put it this way. He said the law shows sinners their sin so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened, worn down, and so may long for grace. And even as born-again believers in Christ, we, we still need to hear God's law for that purpose. The law continues, in a sense, to serve that purpose today. We, we need to hear God's law in this use because we, we so easily turn back to our performance. We so easily run back to our works. One of you said today in the adult Sunday school class, we, we so easily want to return to Rome it's true, isn't it? We, we have this tendency, as twisted as it is, to think that, that somehow, by our good works, we stay in or get in God's favor. And the law is a reminder to us that we can't do that. That's, that's why we have the call to confession every Sunday morning. We, we don't do that because we say, because the elders say, well, you know, this is what the Reformed Church has always done. And we just want to do what the Reformed Church has always done. Reformed churches have done this for a good reason. Because you and I need to hear every Sunday, I can't save myself. It's all God's grace. Christ is my only hope. And so that's the second use of God's law. It serves as a mirror to show us our sin, to, to drive us to Jesus. The third use of God's law is to serve as a map. It is to show us the right way to go. It is to, to show us uh, the way in which we are to respond to God's grace to us. The, the law is not the means of our salvation. The, the law is our response to salvation. Very important to, to make that distinction. And, and this is how the Ten Commandments treat the, or the Heidelberg Catechism treats the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are dealt with in the section on gratitude. Ten Commandments are for the Christian, our response to God's grace to us. To love God, to, to love our neighbor. That's our response to God's salvation. So these are the, these are the three proper uses of God's law. Now, now, which one of these three does Paul have in mind here? Well, I don't think he has the third use in mind. I don't think he has the, the God's law as a map in mind. We, we know this because he's talking about the law being laid down for lawless people and disobedient people. That doesn't really jive with the third use of the law. I, I also don't think that Paul has the first use of the law in mind. In other words, the, the civil or political use. You have to remember that, that Paul is writing this letter to not a politician, not a leader in the government. He's writing this letter to a pastor. He, he's not saying, Timothy, here's why you need to push for good laws in society. Now, that is important that we need to do that. But that's not, I don't think, what, what Paul is saying to Timothy here. I, I, I think instead he's talking about God's law as a mirror. Timothy, keep preaching God's law. Keep, keep holding the mirror of God's holy law up before your people so that they will see that they cannot save themselves, so that they will see that, that Christ is their only hope. Did you notice also, it's, it's interesting that Paul covers many of the Ten Commandments here in this passage. 
Verse 9, he, he talks about the unholy. That, that seems to be shorthand for people who take God's name in vain, who don't treat God's name as holy. Verse 9, Paul talks also about the profane. Uh, children, the, the profane is something that you, to profane something is to trample on something. In the Old Testament, that language is used about people profaning the Sabbath, rejecting the, the holy day of worship. So Paul covers the third commandment. He covers the fourth commandment. Verse 9, he mentions those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's about as far away as you can get from honoring your parents as striking them. That's the fifth commandment. He mentions the sixth commandment when he, he talks about murderers at the end of verse 9. Seventh commandment is next in verse 10. He talks about sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Eighth commandment, Paul mentions enslavers because the eighth commandment says you, you shall not steal. An enslaver is, is anyone who engages in slave trade or kidnaps people, steals people. Ninth commandment is covered next. Paul talks about liars and perjurers. Tenth commandment isn't covered, but, but notice what Paul ends with in verse 10. He says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, the law condemns any behavior, anything that does not line up with God's truth, either in wrong living or wrong belief. Now here's what we have to remember tonight. And it's, it's easy to forget this, maybe. We have to remember that the law is not merely about outward behavior. If that's all it is, all of us here tonight, or most of us perhaps, think we're doing pretty good with this. There will be those who could look at a passage like this and they'll look at the things that Paul says here and they will say, I never struck my parents. I may have been upset at my parents, but I didn't pull out a stick and hit them. I've never murdered anyone before. I've never committed any kind of sexual sin. I've never kidnapped anyone. But children, God's law is not only about your outward behavior. It's about what's on the inside, too. It's about the heart. Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, you all know these words. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Have you ever had unrighteous anger before? If so, you've broken the sixth commandment. In the same chapter, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You ever had impure thoughts before? Then you've broken the seventh commandment. And so this is, this is the use, I think, that Paul is talking about here. Timothy, keep proclaiming the law so that Christ will be held up as your only hope. And the third part of this passage is the, the connection that we've seen see between the law and the gospel. Notice what Paul writes in verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. A couple of things here. Actually, three things. First of all, the law leads us to Christ, doesn't it? If, if you have heard this tonight and you've heard this passage and you've thought to yourself, I am a sinner, 
I've broken God's law in what I've done, what I've said, what I've thought. I say to you tonight, there is hope for you. There is hope in Christ. There's hope in the gospel. So run to him and he will forgive you. Run to him and he will cleanse you. There is hope. Secondly, though, notice Paul makes the statement that he's been entrusted with the gospel. That is a pastor's calling. Pastors have been entrusted with the gospel. That is the church's calling. The the church is to be about the gospel. God has entrusted his gospel to us, not to hide it, not to twist it, not to ignore it, not to say, well, that's for those people out there, but the church has been given the gospel, pastors have been entrusted with the gospel to proclaim it. A pastor that will not preach the gospel is not a faithful pastor and should not be a pastor. I don't care what what other gifts he has or how charismatic or eloquent he is. If he will not preach the gospel, he's abdicated his calling. There was a point in my ministry when someone took me out to coffee. And the first thing this person said to me was, you preach too much gospel. My first reaction was to say, thank you. But it was not meant as a compliment. How is it possible to proclaim too much about the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ? How is it possible to talk too frequently about God's amazing grace to sinners like us? Can we really talk too often about the Savior who died for us? who gave his life for us. The point is that pastors and churches have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel was the priority in Paul's ministry, wasn't it? Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Sounds like the gospel is pretty important to him. That must be our priority as well. No no matter how much the legalists don't like it, we are called to preach the gospel. But secondly, you will notice that Paul also not only says that he's been entrusted with the gospel, he also makes this connection between the law and the gospel. The law and the gospel are distinct, yes. They, They are, in a sense, two different parts of speech in the Bible. But there is a connection. In order to appreciate and savor the beauty of the gospel, we must first hear the law. We must first face the mirror of God's law so that we may see and understand we have nothing to offer to God except for our sin. To see and to understand that we are deserving of eternal judgment. Doesn't matter the home we grew up in, doesn't matter the color of our skin doesn't matter our family connections. None of that matters. All of us stand before God on equal footing by nature, and that is that we are sinners who deserve judgment. And that's what the law does to us. The law 
crushes us. The law humbles us. The law drives us to our needs. The law drives us to see, I am a sinner. But then the gospel comes along and it says to us, here's what Jesus did for you that you could not do for yourself. Charles Spurgeon once said this about the the inseparable link between the law and the gospel. He says, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law is the needle, and you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make a way for it. If men do not understand the law, they will not feel they are sinners. And if they are not consciously sinners, they will never value the sin offering. There is no healing a man until the law has wounded him, no making him alive until the law has slain him. I think that's really what Paul is saying to Timothy here. Timothy, don't let these false teachers scare you away from teaching the law. They twist it, they misapply it, they add to it. Timothy, you keep preaching it. You keep preaching it. Because as Spurgeon said, there there is no healing a man until the law has wounded him. There is no making him alive until the law has slain him. And so we preach and teach both. And we rejoice tonight that the, the law does not have the last word over us. The gospel has the last word. And for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the last word of the gospel is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need to hear that every week, and so do I. So may God give us the courage to preach the law and the gospel, and may God give us the joy of knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the reminder of the the good use of your law. Father, help us to not be ashamed of preaching either the law or the gospel. And may we continue to proclaim that while the law crushes us, Christ makes us alive. While the law condemns us, Christ gives us hope. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. We can never hear that wonderful news too often. May we go forth this week to live in the joy of the gospel, seeking to follow you out of gratitude for what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing number 175. Number 175, it's a a versification of Psalm 119. And, and you'll notice as we sing it, we're going to sing the first four stanzas, that, that the song mentions the, the two uses of the law, the two of the three that I mentioned. One, it is a mirror. Two, it is a map. It, it shows us our sin, but it also guides our living. And we rejoice that Christ fulfilled the law for us. So all the first four stanzas of 175, and let's stand as we sing.
291, stanzas 1 and 7 are our doxology. And before we sing that, uh, please stay for pie tonight. Please stay for an evening of fellowship. And also, more importantly, uh, hear God's word of blessing to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.